Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Fall Classic Rewind, the stories behind the World Series. Got Game 5 of the 1975 World Series between the Reds and the Red Sox are going to be our final game at Riverfront Stadium, our final game in Cincinnati, uh, finishing up the three-game set, and we're going to be going back to Fenway after this one uh, for at least one more game. Um, and... Uh, you know, obviously the series is all knotted up, two games apiece. Uh, you know, the Reds had that walk-off victory in game three, had a chance to win it there in the bottom of the ninth against but Louis Tiant, uh, thanks to Fred, Freddie Lynn with that great catch, they were Red Sox were able to hold on, you know, dis, you know, despite uh despite things being shaky there for Tiant and you know, Daryl Johnson deciding not to go not to go to the bullpen. Uh, but to stick it out with uh, with the cute with the Cuban legend um, in this game today, we're actually another uh, you know a fellow countryman of Louis Tiant, Tony Perez uh, is going to end up being the star, and we'll we'll touch on uh, a little bit of his background and, uh, uh, and and sort of his thoughts, his sort of mindset coming into this game in the series. Um, but you know, it, it's a very it's a very interesting thing. There's some there's some interesting facets to what goes on in this game five. It's, you know, a very pivotal point in the series. Uh, if you're, you know, for obviously for the Red Sox, you know, if you're able, you're able to almost steal this one, you feel really good because you know, you're gonna, you're gonna have two games at home, only have to win one more. Uh, the Reds, on the other hand, they feel like they have to get this game. And in fact, Sparky Anderson said, yeah, we got to get this one. Uh, Cause, uh, Trying to win two, trying to win two in a row at Fenway is going to be a going to be a tall order, um, and especially and and one of the kind of significant factors here is interestingly enough, uh, it's actually not going to be Bill Lee starting this game as was sort of predicted at the end. There, the uh, Red Sox Daryl Johnson is going to go to Reggie Cleveland, who ended up actually pitching in relief pretty well in uh, in Game Three. Uh, I'll get into some of the thinking behind that decision. And I think the main thing was hoping, Hey, game six and seven back at Fenway, Bill Lee, Louis Tiant for game seven, the red, the Red Sox would have felt comfortable, would have felt comfortable season on the line going to those two guys. Um, and, but, it, it, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll explore this decision-making kind of looking at some stats and all that stuff in a moment. Um, you know, but it's, it's a very interesting thing, you know, trying to take advantage of game five. Like, obviously, you know, a 3-1 series lead, 3-0 series lead, almost feel like a guarantee for a, for a team to win. Uh, and the n- numbers uh, obviously back that up. 3-2 series lead, uh, not always, not always as, you know, not always as uh, influential, especially uh, when a team, uh, you know, gets two more games at home. Uh, but we'll uh, we'll explore sort of the background of some of the stars of this game and some of the uh, some of the thinking of from the manager's perspective after a word from our sponsor. The following is a public service announcement. You've all heard the Trident Gum slogan. Four out of five dentists surveyed recommend sugarless gum for their patients who chew gum. Well, I'm sure many of you who know anything about math and statistics have wondered how many dentists were surveyed. What was the sample size? Was it a 
statistically significant sample, like say a hundred dentists, 500 dentists, a thousand or 10,000? Was it 80% of a reliable survey? Was it a US-based survey? Or did it include dentists in other countries like Canada? Was it conducted by a reputable polling firm like the Gallup poll? Were they qualified as DDSs or orthodontists? Lots of unanswered questions uh, centered on a survey about gum. Well, I know something about this. I am a dentist, a licensed DDS. And in 1962, I was attending the annual meeting of the American Dental Association. And I happened to be on a panel with four other colleagues talking about the latest developments in the removal of plaque from enamel. Well, during the session, we were posed a question from the audience by a lovely young lady who said she represented a company called the American Chickle Company. And she asked the panel, including myself and my four smitten dental colleagues, whether we would recommend sugarless gum for our patients who chew gum. I was somewhat surprised that I stood alone among my colleagues and saying no, I would not recommend sugarless gum. I felt that the science behind new sugarless products, such as saccharin, was too underdeveloped to reach any such conclusions. Well, my colleagues disagreed. I didn't think much of it at the time, but then, lo and behold, the makers of Trident Gum promoted the slogan about the four out of five dentists. I was the fifth dentist. So, you see, folks, this wasn't a reliable national or statistically significant survey of dentists. It was a panel of five dentists at a convention in Miami in 1962. I would know because I was one of them. Dr. Dennis Wrigley, DDS from Chicago, Illinois. And I chew double mint gum. A double fresh feeling making you realize double mint's the one for you. Double fresh, double smooth, double delicious to chew. Double pleasures waiting for you. Double mint gum, double pleasure waiting for you. Double mint gum. A double pleasure is waiting for you. If you'll remember back to game three, Sparky Anderson ended up shifting things at the top of his lineup, moving Ken Griffey to the number two hole, bumping Joe Morgan down to three, and actually holding Tony Perez at four and moving Johnny Bench down to five. Now, part of the reason they moved guys around. Johnny Bench was uh, dealing with a shoulder injury for a lot of the year. I think he had ended up having a quarter zone shot. Um, so he was not always feeling great day to day. Um, and, you know, he he had kind of struggled in the postseason up until that point. He struggled in the division, in the uh, in the championship series, in, you know, and even with that opposite field double and a couple of hits, uh, they felt they wanted to move him down. And then, of course, game three, he ends up hitting a two-run homer. Um, now, heading into Game 5, Sparky Anderson decided to switch things up again, flip-flopping Perez and Bench, moving Bench to the 4, to the cleanup spot, and moving Perez down to 5. Part of the main reason for that is 
Tony Perez, who had a great championship series, hit 417, had a home run, four RBIs in three games, you know, but he started off the World Series 0 for 15. 0 for 15 with seven strikeouts through the first uh, through the first four games. Really, really struggling at the plate. I think he had only maybe had a walk and reaching on a couple of fielder ch- uh, choices. Um, and you know they felt like they needed a little bit more offense, and they they needed they needed to score some more runs. And and you know guys will do that. Managers will do that to move a guy down the order take a little pressure off of them, kind of ease things up. Um, and, I mean, I, I don't know necessarily the logic because there are some guys who are like, hey, this is my guy. He's, he's been my guy the whole time, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with him, ride it out with him. Um, but Sparky Anderson was not afraid to sort of switch things up with the lineup a little bit. I mean, he kept the, the main core of it intact, but would kind of move the pieces around uh, as, as he felt necessary. Um, and... So yeah, for, so that's very interesting for Tony Perez, you know, who's, uh, you know, he's sort of, along with Pete Rose, sort of the elder statesman of the Reds, one of the most respected guys across the league, a Latin Cuban star. Uh, he was looked up to from, uh, you know, the likes of Dave Concepcion and Cesar Geronimo as, you know, this sort of shining example of what a Latin star was supposed to be. Uh, and then was also revered by all because he was, you know, uh, obviously on the team he was uh, he was kind of known as a little bit of a as an agitator in a friendly way, you know, one of those guys who really kind of helped was a great clubhouse guy and then also a star on the field, um, and you know, but he was he was beloved throughout the game. People loved Tony Perez, a very warm, friendly. Uh, fun-loving guy and who was really seen as the heart and soul uh, of the Reds along with Pete Rose. Um, not, not necessarily seen as, you know, I think earlier, earlier so late 60s, early 70s, along with Bench, probably seen as their best player. He's a bit older now, uh, but, you know, he's got, he's got an incredible background like Louis Tiant, like w- earlier when I covered Mike Cuellar from Cuba, working on sugar fields, uh, you know, and then signed on with the Havana sugar Kings. Um, that's sort of like, uh, like Mike Cuellar. Uh, and then I had to deal with obviously the, the challenge of restrictions being placed on Cuba, being separated from his family. In fact, I think between 1963 and 1972, he actually didn't go home to see his family, didn't make trips to go see his family. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one of the things that's not necessarily always appreciated by these guys who, you know, have tremendous careers, have, you know, you know, obviously you have to deal with the adversity of being a professional athlete, you know, how tough that job is, you know, to stick it out, play 162 games against the best in the world. But then at the same time, also being cut off from your family uh, due to political divisions, not, not, not through like, uh, you know, obviously there are other hardships that might, uh, that might prevent you from seeing your family. Um, but man, you know, just what a, what a career Tony Perez had. And especially in Cincinnati, I mean, he just sort of seen as the mayor of Riverfront, absolutely beloved in Cincinnati and across the league, perennial all-star player, eventually would become a hall of famer, you know, and including, you know, had seasons, you know, a season where he was top three in MVP, 
This was in 1970. He had 40 home runs and 129 RBIs. And the year before that, 37 home runs and 122 RBIs. Consistent, you know, middle of the order. Benefited from obviously having the likes of Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench, and Ken Griffey hitting in front of him. Uh, but they, he made sure to, to you know, to, to bring them all in. Uh, kind of the epitome of what you would think of as a cleanup hitter back then. Um, and actually, early on in his career, um, you know, he was actually a third baseman. Um, you know, Tony Perez, the guy that we know, is a very big guy, big and boisterous. He was actually growing up, he had the nickname Flacco, as in skinny. Because uh, he was a really kind of wiry sort of shortstop and third baseman. Uh, but then uh, sort of early on in his minor league career, he put on a lot of weight, put on a lot of strength, uh, kind of switched between third base and first base, but played third base a lot of years uh, with the Reds because there was a young prospect, Lee May, uh, who came up in 1967 and was definitely, you know, he was seen as a first baseman. Tony Perez moved over to third, didn't do the greatest defensively over there, but was passable. Uh, but once they traded Lee May for Joe Morgan, uh, they the Reds were more than happy to move Perez, and he was more than happy to move back to first base, uh, where he was really comfortable. Um, and we're going to see, you know, despite, and this is just the thing about baseball, you can, what's so great about the game of baseball is, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no clock. There's all, you gotta, you gotta finish at bats. You gotta finish series. You gotta finish games, you know, and you're, as long as you keep getting that next opportunity, you keep putting the work in, you're going to have a chance to come through for your team. And we're going to see Tony Perez do that. I mean, many people, you know, you, you start off a series 0 for 15, you're striking out a lot. Uh, you know, you, you, you haven't come through in big moments that that might shake some players was going to shake Tony Perez. Uh, and, um, you know, it, unfortunately for Tony Perez, you know, after obviously um, played in the 1976 season where the Reds won the World Series, he actually ended up getting traded to the Expos, um, which, you know, obviously seen as a, a, as a kind of smart business move, get an opportunity for other, other Reds players to come in because um, Tony Perez at this point was, you know, entering his late thirties. Uh, but it was sort of a punch to the gut uh, in a way, I think to the fan base, because you have this guy who is sort of seen as synonymous with the big red machine uh, getting traded away. And, and that was also the big red machine was sort of reaching its end um, towards the, towards the late seventies. Uh, he would come back to Cincinnati after stops in Boston and Philadelphia. Um, you know, but it's just, he seems like the type of player who you would think, oh, well, he, he played with the Reds his entire career. And you would have thought that for, for Pete Rose as well. But, uh, you know, they, those guys ended up uh, going elsewhere, sort of in the, the swan songs of their career. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I talked about now getting into, into the game. I talked about sort of the adjustments that go in. Uh, one, one of the things that was interesting you know, kind of the, the pitching decisions. Um, Sparky Anderson opted to go with uh, Fred Norman in game four instead of bringing back Don Gullett. Um, and that was kind of seen as a puzzling decision, especially because by moving Gullett back a day, that would, in theory, um, I say in theory because 
uh, in theory, would knock him out for knock him out for game seven, and or only make him available in the bullpen. Um, weather might have a factor in when games six and seven get played. Uh, just keep that in mind uh, in terms of the days of rest. Uh, but I think that was also, you know, in terms of Sparky Anderson's mind of he wasn't afraid to have a bullpen game because he trusted his bullpen. Um, but also, I think he felt for whatever reason, he was going to be more confident in Gullet with an extra day of rest. Um, and Don Gullet, man, what a what a start he had uh, to his uh, to his career. Uh, you know, and obviously at this age, you know, he's only 24. Uh, he came up as a 19 year old. In 1970, went 5-2 with a 2-4-3 ERA. Uh, with bursts on the scene, 71-16-6 with a 2-6-5. That was really uh, probably his best season. Uh, was really, you know, excellent again in 73-74, winning 18 games and 17 games, respectfully. He had a shoulder injury uh, this year, um, you know, limiting him to only 22 starts. But in those starts, he went 15-4 with a 2-4-2 ERA. Uh, probably the best that he pitched in his career uh, and was really kind of ascendant as one of the best uh, left-handed starters in baseball. And uh, here we're going to hear our uh, broadcasters talk a little bit about Don Gullett, uh, and then we're going we're gonna to get into the ballgame. Can we talk with Frank Malzone, who was following this ball club the latter part of the year. He watched Don Gullett along with Eddie Casco, another one of the super scouts. You mentioned Ray Shaw, who followed Cincinnati, or rather the Red Sox. He told us that some games that he charted, Gullet, he threw nine of ten fastballs. A couple of games, he threw up to eight fork balls, which moves down and away sometimes to right-handed hitters. Hard curveball. He doesn't throw too many off-speed pitches, so they'll be geared for the fastball, and the Red Sox are a pretty good fastball-hitting club. But he has an amazing fastball when he's right. Here's a four-way look at Gullet. He has a fork ball, too, that you'll see that'll be a peculiar-looking pitch to you. That's his off-speed pitch, fork ball. Cuts his fastball for his slider, curveball. Here he is in slow motion. Don Gullett, certainly one of the best left-handers in the game. He was all-state in baseball, basketball, and football during his high school career at Kentucky. In the June 1969 free agent draft, he was Cincinnati's first choice, and they chose wisely. He has the best one and loss percentage of any active pitcher right now in the major leagues with 80 wins and 41 losses. Nothing and one in the World Series. An amazing season for him. He was out two months with a broken thumb and still wound up with 15 wins. The Red players think Marty Brenneman that he would have been maybe a 25 game winner had he pitched all the way. Now, Don Gellett is one of those great what ifs. Uh, you know, sort of the, if not for injuries, what could his career have been? As, as I mentioned, he was still a really young pitcher. Uh, only, only I think, 24, 25, at, you know, at the time of this, you know, had come up as a 19-year-old. Um, you know, he would go on, you know, the following season to go 11-3, and three, would actually end up signing with the, uh, with the Yankees, going 14-4 and four with them, helping them, leading them to a World Series championship in 1977 but then his career was done at the age of 27 due to injuries you know he finished his career with a 109 and 50 career record with a low three threes era i mean we're talking about a guy who you know if you extend that out you know you give him 10 more years of even just moderate health i mean just what could what could he have done um 
you know, you know, obviously he benefited from playing on great teams. I mean, that helped him have a great record, but he was a darn good pitcher, darn good lefty. Uh, and we're going to see him, you know, get to work here against the Red Sox, um, you know, ends up uh, striking out the first bat. Uh, no, sorry, not striking him out. Uh, he gets uh, Juan Beniquez to roll on sort of roll out to second base. Uh, but then the pressure's put on him kind of like in game one, early pressure on him. Denny Doyle, uh, you know, kind of bounces one down the right field line with an artificial turf gets into the corner. Um, and then he, you know, Denny Doyle ends up on third base. And so immediately from the outset of this game, we've got pressure right on for the reds. Uh, and, uh, with Yaz coming up to the plate, who's already come up with, with clutch hits, clutch RBIs, you know, and has really kind of shown his medal here in the uh, World Series, and uh, he's going to look to get Denny Doyle in. Well, the expression you just saw on Yastrzemski's face told you what he thought about the pitch. He thought it was inside and high. Johnny jerked the ball in just a little. That's going to be deep enough to get the run in. Griffey makes a play, and here's Doyle tagging and coming on in with the first run of the game. The Red Sox go out in front here in the first inning. Carl Yastrzemski picking up his third World Series RBI as Denny Doyle gets a glad hand as he heads back to the Red Sox dugout. A good start for the Red Sox, you know, manufacturing a run there, getting, you know, getting a nice fly ball from Carl Yastrzemski. Um, but all in all, for you know, for Don Gullett, although giving up the run, you know, not really too much of hard contact here in the first inning, weak ground out to second. It's a bouncing ball, well placed. That happens to go down in the corner on artificial turf, you know, with a pretty easy fly out, and then he just absolutely overpowers Carlton Fisk in the next at bat, uh, you know, striking him out. Gullet had a good hard fastball as the lefty, and as you mentioned, had the fork ball, breaking ball, uh, you know, had a had a lot of pitches to turn to, and when he was at his best, he was really really dominant, uh, and. We're going to see that actually play out the rest of this game of, you know, despite him giving up a run, kind of when you're looking at the stuff he was bringing, oh, yeah, Gullet had his good stuff. Game one was a little bit of a, as I mentioned, it, it was a slog for him. He, he really struggled with command. His fastball wasn't as sharp. You know, he was able to get out of a lot of jams, um, you know, and able to find things, but he, he was sort of searching. From the outset of this game, it looked like Gullet had it. Uh, that's one thing I'll mention of even, you know, you think, oh, you give up a run in the first inning, but sort of the takeaway, and I think probably Bench was probably reminding him, like, hey, you got the good stuff today. Don't worry about it. We're going to come back uh, and get it for you. Um, obviously, now we're going to go to the bottom of the first inning. Uh, and, you know, the first thing to mention, again, is it's just it's kind of an odd decision to go with Reggie Cleveland. Uh, just on the surface, you know, Bill Lee had better numbers over the full season. Um, you know, obviously Cleveland had come out of the bullpen earlier in this series. Uh, and, you know, Bill Lee had that masterful performance in game two, really, really uh, kept the Reds the Reds at bay. Um, and kind of you would maybe expect, hey, Tiant was able to shut him down. Who says Bill Lee can't do it again? Um, you know, but there, there were some underlying things here. Again, I thought maybe it had something to do with home road splits, but actually, interestingly enough, uh, Cleveland and Lee were were similar in the regard of they actually struggled a lot at Fenway. 
uh, having ERAs over five. You know, they had winning records thanks to thanks to the Red Sox really really excellent um, uh, offense. Uh, but they were they were sort of they were road warriors, uh, pitching much better on the road than they did at home. Uh, Cleveland was six and three with a three seven one on the road, as opposed to seven and six with a five zero three at home. Uh, the big difference for Cleveland was at Fenway. Uh, he would give up, you know, he gave up fifteen home runs in in only ninety three innings pitched, as opposed to four home runs in 77, 77 innings pitched on the road. So he was, in theory better pitching on the road and especially at limiting damage. Uh, Bill Lee, you know, he, you know, kind of the underlying numbers when you're looking at strikeouts, walks, home runs, and all that stuff were kind of the same uh, home versus away. Uh, but in terms of ERA, you know, Bill Lee was uh, 10 and five with a 301 on the road, as opposed to seven and four uh, with a 509 on the road. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, obviously Fenway is a hitter's ballpark. It, it, the advantage goes to the hitters. You're going to give up more hits, and, and there's sort of an oddity to it. Um, but I think the main thing was down the stretch, Cleveland was a much better pitcher uh, than Lee down the stretch. Uh, and, you know, and that was the reason why uh, Cleveland ended up pitching in the ALCS over Bill Lee. Um, and, uh, you know, because down, down the stretch, Reggie Cleveland went 4-0, with a 2-2-1 ERA in September and October. Uh, and Bill Lee went 0-2 with a 7-0-4 and really, really struggled to go deep into ball games. And so perhaps Daryl Johnson was thinking that game two was a bit of a mirage, or perhaps he was thinking in his mind, well, we lost that game despite uh, Lee's great pitching performance. So it's, it's to me, it's a little bit curious, uh, but I, I, I feel what I imagine was going through Johnson's mind was, Bill Lee is a pitcher contact pitcher at Riverfront. You want a little bit more of a power pitcher because balls to the gap, balls on the ground, they are not, you know, plays well at Fenway, not going to play as well at Riverfront with the artificial turf. You want, you probably want a little bit more upside, uh, even though, you know, Cleveland certainly wasn't a strikeout artist by any stretch of the imagination, but that was the opposite of what Bill Lee did. Anyway, um, Take a listen to the the broadcasters, uh, what they got to say about Bill Lee, and then we'll get into uh, the bottom of the first inning. Jam-packed Riverfront Stadium as we go to the bottom of the first inning. The Red Sox have already put one on the board against left-hander Don Gullett. And now the Reds will go to bat and hit off the right-hander Reginald Leslie Cleveland, a 13-game winner during the 1975 season. Cleveland making his second appearance in this World Series and his first start. Tony, how about this guy? Got a good slider, pretty good sinking fastball. Usually has good control, does not strike out a whole lot. But through August and September, Marty, they tell me that he was the most consistent Red Sox pitcher. Did some awfully good games for the Red Sox down the stretch. Yeah, as you see, as they mentioned there, down the stretch was one of the guys Daryl Johnson turned to in big games. Now, this first inning uh, is actually going to be kind of immediately from the outset pressure uh, pressure on Reggie Cleveland. Uh, ends up, you know, getting ahead of Pete Rose, but Pete Rose uh, shoots one out to left field, getting a base hit. Um, is able to strike out uh, Reggie Cleveland, uh, but then um, Joe Morgan on an 0-2 count is able to, to hit one to right center. Pete Rose ends up advancing to third. <clears throat> and then after, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, – pickoff plays uh, and a lot of, you know, uh, as I mentioned, the game with Joe Morgan, it's on and it's going to play a significant factor here. 
of, you know, obviously you can just look through the box score and see, oh, what count something happened on, how many pitches someone threw. But one thing that it doesn't show is how many pickoff attempts and Cleveland, uh, Morgan was making Cleveland work. Um, and then he ends up actually stealing second base, so setting up second and third, uh, real kind of, with only one out with Johnny Bench at the plate, uh, you know, looking to to uh, to do damage and you know at the very least knock a run in uh, and immediately knock things back up. You know, the Reds obviously gave up a run in the first and were looking to immediately um, immediately respond. But uh, something very interesting happens here, kind of reminiscent of what happened with the Red Sox in their early games in this series. Talked about the hitting comparison between the two teams. The Red Sox have outhit the Reds 40 to 28 coming into tonight's game. the line drive to left off the bat of bench. The Reds are out in the first inning. We saw Benitez yesterday down the left field line shy away from the ball that ain't makes not only a great catch, but look at the throw to get Pete Rose. Right on the money off the artificial surface where you get the true hop and a good tag by Fest. Benitez, of course, is not in good as left as Rick Miller or uh, Carl Yastrzemski, but on this play, a perfect strike. He charged the ball. Right there, and Fisk has the tag waiting for Pete Rose sliding in. Big first inning play for Boston. That ends the inning at the end of one. It's a Red Sox one, the Cincinnati Reds nothing. What a play by Juan Beniquez. And uh, one thing they don't mention is pretty much any time Beniquez was going after a fly ball, uh, his hat would fly off. He had sort of a sort of an, a, a big afro, uh, and uh, he his hat could not stay on no matter where he was going in the outfield. It's just a, a one of the things I noticed watching these games. Um, so, you know, that's a, a, that's a really nice play. You hear the breakdown from Kurt Gowdy, uh, who's back for, uh, back for game five. Um, Gergiola will be back for game six and uh, we won't have Brenneman. I, I can't remember if it's Ned Martin or if it's going to be Dick Stockton for game six, but when we, when we cover that game, I'll, I'll have, uh, I'll have the broadcasters for you. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, uh, you know, kind of a missed opportunity there for the Reds. Uh, it, it was kind of a weak fly ball. It was a sort of a gutsy call from Pete Rose to, to try to go for it. But, you know, again, like trying to read into what guys are thinking kind of early on, they were sort of getting to Cleveland. They were, they were getting some good looks, getting some good hits and feeling, hey, we can be aggressive here because we're probably going to get a chance to add on more runs on this guy. Um, and, uh, you know, though, what actually happened in the early innings was kind of not a lot. Both pitchers through the first, uh, through the first three innings were, were really, really dominant. Uh, both of them getting strikeouts, getting weak contact. Um, you know, that's actually going to get us all the way to the bottom of the fourth inning um, because, you know, both pitchers, and, and this is kind of reminiscent, I think, of the first two games in this series, uh, the first couple of games in this series where both teams, where the pitching was really strong early and then the offenses decided to show up. I mean, obviously the Reds, the Red Sox were able to score a run in the first inning, but as I mentioned, 
yeah, well, wasn't wasn't great contact. Uh, was kind of a you know well placed ball and ended up ended up scoring a run. But otherwise, early on, Gullet was dominant. In fact, didn't allow a base runner. Uh, well, he wouldn't allow a base runner for quite some time uh, in this game. Uh, but that's going to bring us now to the bottom of the fourth inning. And um, so obviously we've got Joe Morgan in the three hole leading off. Uh, he's going to, you know, you know, work it to a two, two count foul off some pitches uh, and then sort of pop out to right field. Uh, so now we've got Johnny bench and Tony Perez coming up and uh, I'm actually going to play Johnny benches at bat here. Uh, Cause he's out able to make some good contact. And uh, well, these, uh, these two plays kind of, go right into one another, but there's also some interesting commentary uh, going on. But take a listen to what happens uh, to Reggie Cleveland the second time facing the middle of the Reds order. Marty, they tell me that the two men at the plate right now, Bench and Thurston Cars playing defensively, studied those scouting reports, committed them to memory more than anybody else. And they're the guys back there who are the generals. They move the outfielders and infielders around. I'll tell you, if there's been one consistent thing in this series, it's been the fact that the Reds have hit the ball at times very hard, but right at people. Here's Petroselli now on the line drive by Bench. One quick step to his right. He leaves the artificial surface, and he's got it. And that's what the scouting reports will do, the advanced reports. They position you correctly so you can catch those hard hit balls. That is, if your pitcher does his job. happy. He clapped his hands as he ran at first base. He finally broke out of it. 0 for 15, and Tony Perez makes his first 1975 World Series hit a big one with a game-tying fourth-inning home run. Reds dug out a little bit happy, you might say, and Joe Morgan there all smiles. Parky Anderson, they love to see this guy hit. Foster waiting for things to quiet down a bit. The Reds have now reached Cleveland for three hits, and that home run tied it up at a run apiece. Finally, a breakthrough for Tony Perez. Uh, you, you can see real joy for him rounding the bases and the crowd going uh, going wild, and you know because obviously they've they've been wanting him to come through this whole time, and. Uh, you know, is able to knock the game up there. I mean, just a just a, a hanger that he absolutely crushes. And, and as I mentioned, kind of you know early on, you know, there was a bit of hard contact given up by Cleveland. You know, he, you know, even despite the fact that you know he hadn't given up a run to this point, the Reds were seeing him pretty well. Whereas Gullet, well, Red Sox weren't really doing much against him, and that would continue for a while. Uh, but again, just what a what a moment for Tony Perez, and you know, as we're going to see, he he uh, he uh, his day was not done. Um, but we're uh, you know, Cleveland's able to get George Foster to pop out, uh, and then we move on to the fifth inning. Just pr- pretty you know, easy going for uh, for for Lynn. There's able to sh- uh, for uh, for Gullet's able to strike out Freddie Lynn. 
is able to get uh, Petroselli to sort of fly out weakly to center. Dewey Evans puts a charge in the ball to, to right center, but uh, – well, actually to, to left center, but Geronimo's right there. Um, and then, you know, bottom of the fifth, Cleveland starts out pretty well for him. Gets a ground out to third, gets a ground out to second against the bottom of the order, and now he's got the pitcher coming up, Don Gullett. Gets ahead of him 0-2 and leaves a fastball right there. Uh, and Gullet uh, singles, uh, hits a line drive up the middle, gets a base hit. Gullet, um, uh, I, uh, I I didn't mention this, but you know, was a multi-sport athlete uh, in high school. Um, you know, was a great football player and basketball player. And you know, so it, you know, being still very young, uh, he was a, he was a pretty well-regarded uh, hitting pitcher. Uh, he actually hit from the right side despite throwing left-handed. Um, and that would bring up Pete Rose. The other guy who was the heart and soul of the Reds. And, well, he would get a chance to do something pretty special. Rose is, uh, he's always talking to somebody. The umpires, the opposition. Somebody asked Parky Anderson, do you resent that? He always seems to have his nose in something. I said, no, he's like me, he's nervous. He said, he can't sit still in the hotel lobby. He's got to get up and move around. Two down, double to the first. Game tied, one all, last to the fifth. Rose trying to hit that hanging curveball. Got off the elevator yesterday after the ball game on the ground floor level, and all of a sudden the riders got off, and some kid came sliding right into the elevator door. Guess who it was, Marty? Pete Rose Jr. Special <laughs> <laughs> Googie. It's his nickname. You got more pep, the old man? He sure yeah. does. One strike. There's a drive. That's a tough chance. There's a fair, and it is a fair ball in the corner. Dillon is being laid on, and he's in the score. Rose holds it second. Rose doubled to the left field corner. Carlson really mad down at the third base back. He kicked that third after the overthrow of the cutoff man. There goes Benitez into the corner. About sliced away from him. He got the ball pretty quickly, but then he made his mistake when he overthrew it. With Gullet's speed, I don't think they'd have gotten him anyway. Carlson very upset. One of the few fundamental mistakes that Red Sox have made so far in this series. Overthrowing a cutoff man. Well, Rose has had a perfect night with a single, a walk, a double to the left field corner. He has an RBI, and the Reds have the lead 2-1. to one. Well, that's certainly a way to help yourself out on the mound. You know, Don Gullett getting a base hit and then scoring from first on the ball down the left field line. You don't see a lot of pitchers. I mean, Louis Tiant would try to tear around the bags, but uh, was not very fast. And I think most times pitchers, you know, are definitely station-to-station -station guys. But Gullett, being the athlete he was, took advantage of that opportunity and scored with ease. Um, you know, obviously there you see it's a tough play for Beniquez. I mean, w those balls that are just kind of high fly balls, there's no way he's going to have a chance to catch it. You just hope it goes foul. Um, ended up bouncing in a nice position, and he made a great throw earlier in the game, but uh, lets this one sort of uh, fade uh, kind of down the foul line. And then um, there it is. The Reds are up 2-1, and with the way Gullet's pitching, um, it, you know, the Red Sox are going to have to 
<laughs> have to find some offense. Um, and, you know, kind of curious uh, decision. I mean, uh, Ken Griffey ends up uh, popping out here. Um, and, uh, you know, but it kind of, I think it was a curious decision. Okay, at this point, you're down 2-1. Um, we get to the top of the sixth inning here. And uh, after Burleson flies out to right, um, Johnson doesn't take Cleveland out of the ballgame. You know, five innings, two runs. Uh, you know, I, I know, you know, again, Johnson, he was someone who was a little averse of going to his bullpen. But I think, hey, you need offense. At the very least, you need offense here. But he leaves Cleveland in. Cleveland ends up striking out. Um, and then actually uh, Juan Beniquez ends up getting a walk. He's actually the first base runner that we've had since that Doyle trip, triple. I think, you know, it was almost, in fact, it was 15 consecutive batters, basically five straight innings of, uh, of, of perfect ball there from Don Gullett. Uh, but then Denny Doyle, he's, uh, you know, with playing the line a little bit more, it, it grounds out to Tony Perez. And that's going to lead us to the bottom of the six. And this is where I really think is some, is mismanaging from, uh, from, from Daryl Johnson and a real, again, this sequence here, it's the ball game and it might even be the series. Um, you know, obviously again, and I'll take a step back. They needed to score runs off of Don Gullett in this game with the way Don Gullett pitched. It might not have mattered the decisions that were made here. However, to start off the sixth inning, you know, after opting not to pinch hit for him, where you could have had either Rick Miller, you could have had, um, heck, you could have even had uh, Cecil Cooper come in, and, you know, get a look or, you know, just someone there to pinch hit. Um, Joe Morgan's going to end up walking to lead off the inning. Now, there were some really close pitches in this at bat, and Cleveland is hot. He's mad because he really thinks, and especially the last pitch, thinks it's a strike. He's got a pretty decent case, but hey, Joe Morgan's the MVP. He's got one of those guys with those uh, with the eyes and respect, uh, like a Ted Williams, uh, like a in the future, a Barry Bonds of where hey, if he didn't swing, it's not a strike. Uh, that's a lot of times the the up umpires kind of gave deference of hey, if it's borderline pitch and the guy laid off of it, well, the hitter's probably right. Um, but then again, the game is on, and this is where I I count over basically over in this at bat. I think there are a dozen, at least a dozen throwovers in this at bat. It's incredible. I think he throws over seven times in a row, and I don't know if he gets close to catching him once. Um. And, and it's just, it's just one of those things that's like, oh, what are, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then, you know, you throw over that much. And then what ends up happening is he gives up a base hit, uh, you know, through the right side, you know, and because Denny Doyle's trying to get over to cover second base and then gives up a hit through the right side. And, uh, and you know, uh, Dewey Evans comes up gunning. Ends up actually, uh, the ball skids past third uh, uh, third base. Or actually, I think it, it actually hits Morgan, uh, and that allows Johnny Bench to to go to second base. So now we've got second and third. Second and third, nobody out. Tony Perez, who had just hit a home run coming up, 
Daryl Johnson goes out to the mound. He's got the bullpen woman. He's got Willoughby and, and Murray warming. And for some reason that I cannot comprehend, he leaves Cleveland in. Cleveland, who's, you know, already thrown as many pitches as he has had to work pretty hard to get to this point in this game of having only given up two runs. And he just also threw a dozen pickoff throws, is a little rattled, is hot at the umpire. To me, at least try someone else. You know, Jim Willoughby, the last time he pitched, he threw three, you know, three shutout innings, ended up giving up a run, but that wasn't his fault. You know, that was, uh, that was, a, that was sort of a wacky scenario uh, in game three that, you know, Willoughby ended up getting charged with a loss. But for some reason, he ends up sticking with Reggie Cleveland. And, hey, Cleveland, you know, ends up getting ahead in the count. And in fact, there's actually, there's a foul pop-up. Uh, Carl Fisk goes diving into the camera well, almost comes up with a catch. And so it almost works out. But again, I think this is the, this is the decision of the ball game and perhaps the decision of the series. Take a listen to what happens here with Tony Perez at the plate with two runners on. One ball, two strikes. Runners on second and third. Nobody out. Tony Perez with that infield drawn in against him. He hits a blast in the deep left center. That's gone. Way Another great moment for the mayor of Riverfront Stadium, Tony Perez, coming through there. Um, just, uh, you know, crowds electric. And I mean, that feels like, and, and as we'll come to see, that that's the ball game there pretty much. This late home run like that, it's now a 5-1 ball game. And again, that's the reason why it, it, it's kind of mind-boggling to me that Johnson left Cleveland out there at that point, and especially when he had just pitched two days before. You know, you you had Willoughby and Murray warm. You had him ready to go, and you just didn't bring him in. Um, it's a curious, you know, <clears throat> in my mind, it's a curious decision, um, and I'm sure it's one that you know Johnson got rewarded, you know, for sticking with Tiant in Game Four. And it blew up in his face, leaving the guy uh, too long in uh, in game five. Um, it, that's baseball sometimes. Sometimes, you know, it comes down to the guys executing. 
Um, but again, all of the things I talked about where it just seemed like a foregone conclusion that Cleveland was going to give it up to Perez. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's almost inexcusable. You know, I, I can understand after the walk that was close, but especially after the, ba- after the base hit by, uh, by bench, you know, bring, bring someone else in, say, hey, you know, we're going to try to keep it close. You know, you, you, you know, you kept us in it, but now when you look at it, it's like, oh, five innings, five runs, we've won, only scored one. It's a tough look, um, you know, and, and Willoughby comes in and he shuts it down. You know, uh, he does end up hitting Dave Concepcion. Uh, he gives up a hit by pitch, but he retires three of the four batters in that inning. Um, and, uh, you know, then we're going to go to the top of the seventh here. I'm actually, you know, like I said, Don Gullett has been dominant, uh, you know, he uh, he had that walk there in the six, you know, had a stretch where he retired 15 straight batters, uh, but he hasn't allowed a hit. Um, and uh, we're just going to – I just think there's some interesting and some funny little commentary here uh, with Carlton Fisk up at the plate um, that really just kind of shows, hey, the Reds, this is the first game it really feels like the Reds showed up today. Gullet is just overpowering tonight. They're not getting around. They're popping them up. He's got a good curveball going now, too. That's what that was to Fisk, a hard curve. Reds think he's the best left-hander in baseball. The way he looks tonight, I wouldn't argue. Mm. Heard you talk about Don Gullett. The Red Sox are seeing the real Don Gullett, and they're also seeing the real Big Red Machine for maybe the first time. The 2-2 delivery. Fisk drives it into deep left. Foster backs up the take. Line drive by Fisk to Foster in left. Now, only a left-hander would do what's going on in the Red Sox bullpen. <laughs> Bill Lee loosening up for his next start. He is pitching from a distance about twice 60 feet 6 inches. That catches way back. Tim Blackwell passed home plate, but that's Bill Lee. <laughs> Oh, he's a left-hander all the way, isn't he? <laughs> and there's Bill Lee. I mean, I don't know. I don't think he he wasn't warm enough to come into the game, I don't imagine. But it's just, you know, they didn't have bullpens under and all that. He he just, uh, you know, because obviously he was expecting to pitch today. Uh, but he's going to be, uh, well, he's actually going to have to wait a little bit longer than he even expected um, based off of the weather uh, that we're going to have coming. Um but yeah, him him basically almost doing long toss out in the bullpen. I mean, that's just you know most guys the, the, they aren't doing that. But uh, well, Billy he's a he's a special character. But you know, back to the story of Don Gullet, and it's really been his day. He and Tony Perez really showed up for the Reds here today. And um, I mean, it's just one of the things of even when the Red Sox square up a ball, it's right at someone today. Uh, where you know some of the breaks we mentioned, you know some of the breaks weren't going their way, and of course the you know the Red Sox kind of had the advantage so far in this series, uh, you know despite the Reds being the favorites and the series being evened up, but uh, you know the Reds the the things broke their way today. Uh, they really, they really. I think this is this is the first time that this is the first game that the Reds really outplayed the Red Sox and that the Red Sox did just, you know, 
they they and sometimes that happens it just isn't your day um you know and and gullet uh gullet was dominant um we are actually going to see what ends up being a really nice play here uh for the red sox um you know ken griffey ended up getting the single and uh off of jim willoughby uh and then like before the game was on uh lots of uh Lots of pickoff throws. We're going to actually hear a little bit about that. And then uh, with uh, Joe Morgan at the plate, uh, we're actually going to see a nice defensive play from the Red Sox. Uh, one of the few little bright spots they had in this game. As Griffey are looking at first, Jaspersky holding. Marty, Joe, I understand when he was hitting in that third spot, didn't like guys running off first base to steal bases. Finally, Sparky talked and said, with two strikes, is it all right? And he said, yeah. Tony, that's a good point because it does bother Joe Morgan. As you know, some hitters it doesn't affect, some it does, and it bothered him considerably. Willoughby is trying to keep Griffey close. One ball, no strikes to Morgan. Five to one, Reds. There goes Griffey. A little flip to first with a double play. What a catch. He was going over to cover the bag on the steal attempt. Got in a little bit better position. You could see the expression on Morgan's face. He said, oh, almost as if he could read what was going to happen. A great play by Burleson. So at the end of seven, it's still Cincinnati five and Boston one. You can see why uh, Joe Morgan maybe didn't want guys running because sometimes it would end up like this where you light a ball that should be a base hit ends up being a double play. Um, kind of interesting perspective from Morgan, uh, who obviously, you know, with great hitters behind him, like Johnny Bench and Tony Perez or George Foster, uh, he, he didn't really care uh, about their feelings on, uh, on, uh, on him stealing. Cause uh, he went, he went now, of course he was extremely efficient and he would argue it put pressure on the hitters. Um, and I think it was maybe more of an issue of whether it was Rose or Ken Griffey and saying, Hey, you're not as efficient, so maybe don't mess me up. I'll move you. I'll move you to third base, or heck, I'll drive you in from first base because I'll I'll lace a double to the gap. Um, but obviously, this is one of the few times in this game that something happens to break the Reds, uh, the Red Sox way, and not in the Reds' favor. Um, you know, good. Again, this is a game where it was pretty much dominance from Don Gullett. Um, he ends up getting through the eighth inning. Uh, does give up his first hit since the fir- uh, since the first inning since Denny Doyle. Uh, Dewey Evans gets a single up the middle after uh, Rico Petroselli actually puts a charge in the ball to left uh, to left center field, but uh, Geronimo is able to run it down. Burleson flies out to center, and then Doug Griffin ends up pitch hitting and uh, lines out weakly uh, to uh, to to second base. Um, you know, and then actually bottom of the eighth. Uh, nothing really exciting happens here. Um, so obviously uh, the the uh, uh, Dick Pole uh, was brought in, uh, but it doesn't go well for him. He ends up walking Johnny Bench and Tony Perez, uh, and then immediately gets replaced by Diego Segui, a vet- veteran pitcher um, who, of course, was the father of David Segui. But he was sort of at the end of his road. I mean, he had. He had been a journeyman, had pitched uh, with the Kansas City Athletics and the Oakland Athletics and the Seattle Pilots, uh, and actually was 
in the Cardinals uh, organization. I believe he was actually part of the trade in which uh, Reggie Cleveland was brought over from the Cardinals. Not like Reds and Card- uh, Red Sox and Cardinals made some deals together. Um, you know, um, George Foster um, ends up flying out to right. Uh, uh, Dewey Evans does his best to, to try to throw him out at third, but uh, not enough there. And uh, Concepcion hits another fly ball that's, that's a bit too deep. Uh, and we get another run, so it ends up being a 6-1 ball game. Diego Segui does his job, gets three fly balls, uh, but does allow a run to score. And so then that brings us to the top of the ninth inning. Don Gullett with a chance to get a complete game, two-hitter, dominant performance, probably, you know, uh, apart from Tion's masterpiece in game one, probably the best, the best pitching performance we've seen so far in this series. Uh, and it looks like it's going to go that way. Uh, he gets Juan Benitez to to strike out. You know, it's a long count, three two count, but gets him striking out swinging. Uh, then gets Denny Doyle to roll over to second base. But there's that man again, Carl Yastrzemski, standing in his way. Gets a single to center, pokes it up the middle, and then Carlton Fisk gets a single to left. And and now we've got a little bit of trouble. I mean, hey, it's still a six one ball game. But the 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 bullpen's now going. We've got Raleigh Eastwick warming up. We got McEnany down there. A little bit of a okay. As again, I, I harken back to Game One where Gullet, you know, it all went sideways really, really fast. Now the Reds, uh, the Reds, they're one out away. They can afford to, to be pa- a little bit patient here, but not too patient. Uh, but anyway, he upsets the MVP of the American League, Freddie Lynn, who's just not hit well off a of gullet at all, has not been able to figure him out, has had a rough day at the plate, uh, and really has had a rough series to this so far. The The Reds have uh, had a real handle on him. But here he is with an opportunity to at least knock Don Gullet out of the ballgame. Don Gullet, one strike away of sending the Reds into a three-game to two lead. When the two teams go back to Boston for game six. Two down. Here's the one-two delivery. And he hits it fair down the right field line into the corner. Yastrzemski's in the score. Fisk goes to third. And in the second is Lynn with a double. And the Red Sox have had three hits in a row after two out, nobody on. An RBI for Lynn. That makes the score now six to two. And Sparky Anderson is getting ready to move out. A right-hander, Petroselli, is due up next. Here's Anderson coming out. Don Gullett suddenly lost it in the ninth. With two down, nobody on. Yastrzemski hit a single to center. Fisk a single to left. And Lynn a double into the right field corner. Well, coming in now. What a ovation for Don Gullett. Picked the whale of the ball game, Kurt. You said he lost it very, very quickly in the ninth inning. He struck out Benicas leading off on a good live fastball. With two down, three straight hits, and well, again, we see Sparky Anderson go to his bullpen for the fourth time in this series and bring on right-hander Raleigh Eastwood. 
There's a break in the action here at Cincinnati. The score, the Cincinnati Red Six, the Boston Red Sox two. You can hear a loud ovation for Gullet uh, as he walks off the mound. Now, of course, he envisioned entering that ninth inning that the ovation would be him uh, basically in an embrace with uh, Johnny Bench and walking towards the dugout with uh, with a uh, Game 5 victory, complete game victory in hand. Uh, unfortunately, not going to be the case regardless. Still eight and two-thirds. Uh, he's still responsible for two, more, with, for two more runners, but a dominant performance from Gullet and really – what you expect an ace to do. Uh, and he was seen as the ace of the Reds, the best, le- you know, they viewed him as the best left-handed pitcher in baseball. Eh, you know, Carlton was still around and dominant at this time. So that was probably a stretch, uh, but he was one of the better ones. Um, and he really, uh, you know, he, you know, he had a letdown performance in game one and really came through today. Um Obviously, Sparky, he's going to turn to, to to his reliable rookie reliever, Raleigh Eastwick, who, you know, had a had a you know rough outing in game three, but really in in some ways it was one bad pitch. Uh, you know, gave up gave up a home run, but then was able to come back in and settle down and throw two, you know, two scoreless innings on top of that. Um and uh was great in game four, kept the kept the Reds in it, had three shutout innings. And had two shutout innings in game uh, in in game two, picking up a win. So um, you know he trusted Raleigh Eastwick, he, but this is going to be the fourth time that he's gone to him in this series, and you know that's a lot. That's a lot of stress to be on a rookie. Uh, but right here, going up against Petroselli, well, <laughs> Raleigh Eastwick wasn't going to let this game wasn't going to let this one slip away. And Don Gullett got the first two men out, but Nikos and Doyle with nobody on. I think you'd have bet your home that he was going to pitch a complete game. And suddenly the Red Sox came to life with three hits in a row. And now Raleigh Eastwick is in for his fourth game of this series. He's allowed only one run in six and two-thirds innings of relief. And he's facing Rico Petroselli, who has struck out and fly to center field twice. Fisk is at third, Lynn's at second, two down. Six to two, Cincinnati. A strike. Enrico Petroselli. Petroselli's hit safely in every game except this one. Burleson, who'd hit safely in every game, has been checked tonight. But Doyle continues his streak. Foul ball back. Eastwick is two strikes to Rico Petroselli. Not a very happy Red Sox dugout. Oh, and two. Two down. Two men in scoring position. Ninth inning. There it is. Eastwick strikes Petroselli out. And the Reds lead three games to two in the ninth inning. The Red Sox had a hit, a one run, three hits, no errors, they left two. Don Gullett did the job for him tonight, aided by a big bat of Tony Perez, who slammed two homers and knocked in four. So they now will go to Boston Saturday afternoon. And there it is. Just absolutely overpowering uh, stuff there from Eastwick. Petroselli really didn't have a chance, and... Well, the Red Sox didn't really have much of a chance uh, with Don Gullett the way he pitched today. Uh, 
great, great victory for the Reds. Going to be up 3-2, heading back to Boston, heading back to Fenway. Um, feeling, feeling really confident. And, you know, a guy who had struggled throughout the series, Tony Perez, well, hey, he has a day, two home runs, four, four runs driven in. Uh, huge day at the plate. Pete Rose continues to set the table at the top. Um, just a, you know, a great game from the Reds. And, and really the first time that you feel you saw the big red machine really in action. Uh, we heard the broadcasters mention that. Um, and, you know, obviously game three, the big red machine uh, came through. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it, it's very... It's very interesting. This was the first time that the pitching really, really held it down. The, the pitching did great in uh, in game two, uh, obviously, um, but behind Jack Billingham. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, here we are heading to game six. Uh, it's going to be going to be very interesting to see what happens. Uh, I mean, I, I know what happens, uh, but game six, <laughs> leading into game six, it's arguably the greatest baseball game of all time. One of the greatest World Series games ever. Um, there's, I think there's a, there's, there's very strong competition in that regard. Uh, but I'm going to be super, I'm going to be incredibly excited to cover that one, but just a, but a few more thoughts here to wrap up, um, this, uh, this game five, you know, game five, can, it's obviously a pit of, uh, uh, pivotal, uh, when, when you're tied up in the series, you get in that advantage. And, you know, like I said, at the beginning, the Reds, they had to have this one. Um, it, you know, because trying to go take two in a row at Fenway park, uh, not a lot of teams are able to do that. Um, and so that's also, you know, a thing of where, where you're thinking where the Red Sox are disappointed, you know, they feel they should certainly be up in the series or maybe even want it by this point. Um, but at the end of the day, okay, we, we didn't get swept at riverfront stadium. We took one. We did our job. We just got to win. We got to win the next two at home. And that's, you know, they felt, they felt confident at Fenway Park. Um, again, it was a, a bit of a curious decision, but understandable decision to start Cleveland in this game. I mean, I, I think if you were going to be potentially holding him to start, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe don't pitch him in relief earlier uh, in the series. Um, and, uh, and certainly, Hey, after he's already given up a home run and, and and some other extra base hits and hard contact, yeah, maybe maybe take him out. Don't let him face the guy the guy who took him yard uh, with multiple guys in scoring position. But hey, it, you know it's one of the things of, of managers of when your players fail to execute, it gets put on you. Um, but when uh, when when the players do do their jobs, uh, obviously the players are showered with praise and players are, are criticized. It, it's a, it, it's a tough, it's a tough, it's a tough job. Uh, you know, and, uh, but it, it's one of those things I think that, you know, Red Sox, Red Sox fans, Red Sox general management, it, they were things that were kept in mind as, you know, the Red Sox would have some struggles. And, you know, of course it's still, you know, there wasn't really talk about the curse of the Bambino too much. I mean, I think that really started in '86 uh, in the Mets series, and obviously with the uh, infamous play, uh, well, or failure to make a play by uh, Bill Buckner. Though, of course, that game—it's—it's—it's it's, it's always those interesting things of this famous play, and it's like, well, 
where's all the the hate for Chiraldi and 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 uh, Bob Stanley who uh, couldn't set the Mets down and there ends up being wild pitches that allowed allowed the tying run to score so that then the winning run scores anyway the McNamara who was the uh, the the manager ended up uh, taking a lot of heat then too and so I mean again Red Sox managers have to take a lot of heat you know you can you can even win a World Series and then and then you can take a lot of heat uh, and get fired from your job so. You know, it, it's 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 an interesting thing. Um, looking 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 back at this series and looking ahead uh, to what happens of like legacies get shaped. You know, uh, you know, obviously it's something of where we think about the big red machine coming through, but you know, to this point in the seventies up until nineteen seventy five, despite their regular season success. Big Red Machine was seen as seen as a little bit of a disappointment. You know, they they uh, you know they they were they were the favorites in pretty much every series they had been to this point, and they had lost those World Series. They had lost some championship series, including one against the Mets in '73. And you know, there there was concerns about their their pitching. There was concerns about their depth. Were they get were Rose and and Perez getting too old? Was 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 Joe Morgan the right guy? Was he that good? And I mean, this was the year they really put it all together and put out and were outstanding. And now here they now here they were, one win away, just one win away from a World Series. But the Red Sox, well, they weren't going to go down without a fight, and we're going to see that in the excellent, excellent Game Six, which will be uh, the next game we cover, though. And obviously, I, I do these about once a week uh, in terms of recording. And that was almost the amount of time they had to wait because there was huge rains in uh, in Boston that ended up uh, delaying the start of the game. And that's going to impact, actually, who ends up pitching in it. Uh, we'll, of course, cover all of that uh, uh, in the uh, the following episode when we cover Game 6, and which is going to be my favorite probably my favorite episode that that we're going to do up until this point um anyway here we are the reds take a 6-2 victory behind an absolutely outstanding day from don gullet and a bounce back great performance from tony perez big red machine one win away So that's all I have for today. Catch you next time on Fall Classic Rewind.